Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, amen? Amen. What a wonderful name. Mm. We cannot sing enough, we cannot say enough about that name, that name of Jesus. You know, even when we speak out of the Old Testament, as we are today, we're looking in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, we're still talking about Jesus. Because as the New Testament tells us that all of the Bible testifies to Christ, both before and after and during his coming, all of scriptures speak of Jesus because all of scripture speak of the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to the coming Messiah. The Gospels testify to his incarnation, his his life, his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension. And, and we see that in the book of Acts. And then the life of Christ through the Spirit, as he has ascended into heaven, the Spirit of Christ descends, comes upon the church at the day of Pentecost. And now the Spirit of Christ continues with us. And Christ is, continues to be testified to throughout the rest of the New Testament. And as the church goes on today, we continue to walk in the Spirit of Jesus. So our... our um, passage today is concerns a prophet named Elijah. And the title of this message is called A Pity Party for a Prophet. Have any of you ever had a pity party before in your life? Um, yeah, a few of, yeah, a few of us are honest. Um, the rest of us just don't want to admit it, but we, we've all been there. Uh, just Honesty is a hard thing. Like, for instance, I'll just be honest about a random fact. Um, before I started wearing these things, I used to think that I had pretty good breath. You know that? I mean, I really did. I like, you know, I thought, yeah, I have, I have good. I'm not one of those people with halitosis. No, no, no. I have good breath. I don't need all that. You know, I mean, I'll take an occasional mint. It can get off every once in a while. But generally speaking, I thought I have good breath. But I started wearing this and I started saying, I don't know why anyone ever came within six feet of me. Because as I start breathing my breath in, I'm like, whoa, that's strong. I needed this mask to protect everyone before there was any kind of virus going on. Okay, that's honesty. Now, how many of you share? No, no, no. I won't put you to that test. I don't want any of you to lie in church. But, you know, it's tough to be, uh, to be honest. But honestly, we do all get in these pity parties sometimes. And so even though Elijah is so different from us, he lived thousands of years ago and he was a prophet and prophets did strange and crazy things um, back in those days. And um, there's, he was a man. He was a human being just like us. And so just like he had a pity party, we have pity parties sometimes. And so we can learn some stuff from this really ancient, strange, different kind of dude who's like us just being a human being and him having a pity party. So 1 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 9 through 18. And so uh, those of you who are present with us, would you please uh, stand in honor and reverence for the reading of God's word. 1 Kings 19, 9 through 18. There he went to a cave and spent the night, <clears throat> and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, Go out and stand by the mountain in the presence of the Lord. 
for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face And he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Melohah, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage from your word. And Lord God, I just pray that you would um, take it and and Father, help us to understand, um, Lord, what we need to understand about the human condition, how you created us. Uh, Also, Father, the tendencies we have because of our sinful nature and Lord, the things we need to understand about walking in your spirit and not falling into those fleshly ways, but rather relying on you and trusting on you. And, and Father, um, how we can handle the different circumstances that life throws us when things don't exactly work out the way that we expect. And, and so, God, we just pray that your word would accomplish what the purpose um, that you have for it in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. In the Bible, there's lots of amazing men and women. There's hundreds, perhaps thousands of different characters, and they're all there for a reason. They all tell us something, but there's a few who are, who are just very special. They're almost like prototypical type of characters. Uh, for example, when you think King David, I mean, there's lots of others. He wasn't the first. Saul was the first king, but David, he's the prototype. He's the one held up as the model or example, even though he did some bad things that we shouldn't follow, okay? But, but he's the king, and, and you think of, uh, you know, he was just a, kind of a, a secular leader. If you think of combination secular and religious leader, uh, you think of Moses. And he left, he led the people out. He was the let my people go. He was kind of, you know, the, the prophet and the, the secular leader all in one. But if you look at just pure prophet and you think, who, who is that prototype prophet in the Old Testament? You get Elijah. And this guy was, God did amazing stuff uh, in and through him. And so how do you get to this point where Elijah has a pity party? Well, you kind of have to back up. You have to do a little bit of a flashback kind of thing. Um, really back to about uh, 1 Kings chapter 16. I won't have you turn there. Just kind of summarize. In 1 Kings chapter 16, you're, you're getting this history lesson of kings. 
hence the title kings, okay? So you got the kings of Israel, the kings of Israel who are going on here. And Israel at this point, we're not talking about the whole nation of Israel, the whole 12 tribes as it originally was, but the kingdom has split after Solomon uh, his son came on the scene. Things went haywire. It split into the north and the south. The south took the name Judah after the largest tribe, and the north kept the name Israel. So when we say Israel here, we're talking about the northern tribes. And so these kings are, all of them are bad. <laughs> this is just sad to say. We get the history of the kings in the south, and most of them are bad, but a few of them are good. But the Bible tells us every single one of these kings in the north were all bad. They all displeased God. And one after another, they're kind of worse and worse and worse. So we get to this chapter 16. We hear about this king after that king and how they're bad. And so one comes on the scene. His name is Omri, O-M-R-R-I. So everybody through your masks, say that with me, Omri. Okay, one, two, three, Omri. Okay, Three things to know about Omri. First of all, the Bible says he was the worst one yet. Okay, he was worse than all the kings that came before. He was more evil. So he was worse than all of them yet. Second thing, uh, he, he bought a, a, a piece of land from a guy named Shemer. Shemer, okay? And he decided to take that land and turn it into uh, a capital city for himself. And after Shemer, he named it Shemaria, which became Samaria. Okay, so that's kind of how, if you've heard of the city of Samaria, that's where it came from. He founded it and named it after the guy he bought it from, Samaria. Okay, third thing was that he fathered a guy named Ahab. And Ahab became the king after him. And the Bible says, guess what? You are, Ahab got a new title. That is, he was the new king of evil. Omri, his father, had been the most evil king yet. And the Bible says, he doesn't use this word because it's not a word, but he says he was eviler. You know, he was worse. He was even more evil than Omri was. I mean, what a distinction. He was so evil. And so he's just doing all kinds of, of, of bad things going on uh, in, in the nation. And he's, he's bringing in... Uh, false gods, some of them who had never, these bad religions that had never been driven out uh, of the nation. And he's also bringing in false gods from other areas. And, and things are just going downhill really badly. Okay? So in, verse, in chapter 17, Elijah shows up. We really get no introduction other than, hey, there's this guy named Elijah. He's a Tishbite. And he shows up and announces to the king, uh, hey, king, guess what? Uh, you're not living right, you're not doing right, and therefore, it's not going to rain for three years. See ya! And, and mic drop, and he's out the door, okay? I imagine, ha, 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 you know, they all, the court probably all laughed and mocked and thought that was real funny, and they probably had good jokes about it, you know. It would be trending if they had that such sort of thing back then you know, for a day or two or three, and then all of a sudden the days start to go by. And it hasn't rained. Oh, that's just coincidence. Uh, second week goes by, it hasn't rained. Hmm, maybe there's something to this. And it really starts not raining. In fact, this ends up going on for three years. Can you imagine three years? I asked our our resident uh, ag expert, Alan Leonard, I said, what would happen to us if it didn't rain here in the United States for three years? 
his first three words, very bad things. Okay? And then he went on to give me the detailed explanation uh, of, you know, how the wheat and the corn, like he said, corn's in everything. You don't even realize it, like corn is in your toothpaste. I mean, they're the wheat and the corn and all these things we grow, they're in everything. And so the discomfort we feel right now when toilet paper's hard to find or the stuff that we're going through right now before, because of the coronavirus, that is nothing compared to what would happen in this modern day and age when bringing in stuff from other countries is much, much easier it was back then. It'd be horrific. So you got to think this brought this kingdom to its knees. And so we all know the old phrase, you know, don't, don't shoot the messenger. Because obviously we, that's how things work. People want get to the, get the guy who sent the bad word. So they're all looking for him. Um, they all want to kill him or make him change. You know, they think if we can make him say something different, then it'll change this. So God has him hiding out. God anticipated what was going to happen. God said, hey, you go down by the Jordan River. There's this, spe- there's this special ravine, this special little cave, and, um, and you're going to hide there. They're not going to find you. You're going to be able to drink from that little brook, and I'm even going to have the ravens bring you the food. Now, can you imagine this? Ravens are bringing the food in. I'm kind of like, ooh, that's how we get diseases like COVID, right? You know, I mean, animals, I mean, that just doesn't sound very nice. But, you know, God said to do it. So, so he did it. And they brought him little whatever it was to eat every day, little morsels. And he lived that way for a long time. And then that brook dried up. And God said, oh, go, there's a, there's a widow lady, uh, a young widow. And, and she's, she's just lost her husband. But I've told her to, to take you in. Is she and her, her son, and you go live with them for a while. She'll feed you. He shows up, and she says, look, man, I'd love to feed you, but uh, I, I'm, I got enough flour in my, in my little flour pot to, uh, to cook one last meal for me and my son, and then we're going to die. Okay, that's how bad off, because this whole thing has been going on for a while now, this whole, this, this drought. And he says, with God as my witness, as long as this drought's going on, not only that flour, but also the oil you have, neither one of them are ever going to run out as long as this thing lasts. And it comes true. This is like the bottomless flour jar and the bottomless oil jar and, and has enough to feed them continuously. God does this amazing miracle. And toward the end of the time there, you know, everything seems to be going great. And toward the end of the time there, her young son, who's about to become a man, all of a sudden he just up and dies. And, and she, goes, she goes crazy, hysterical, just like any other mom would do if their only child just unexpectedly comes up and dies. And she says, why did you do this? Why did you ever show up here? You know, basically you gave me hope that life was going to be good. And now only to cruelly take it away. This must have been some big joke. Why did you even show up here? And he rushes upstairs, he lays out over the, over the young child, and he prays uh, over him three times, and the young man puts the breath of life back into him, and he comes back to life, and comes down, and everything is all good. Okay, so amazing stuff is happening. Right after this, God finally says, okay, Elijah, this, the time is up. It's been about three years. And by the way, at the beginning... Remember, Elijah said there's going to be a drought. He didn't tell him how long. God didn't even tell Elijah how long. But God, now it's been three years later, God tells Elijah, the drought's about to be up, 
but I've got a plan for you. And so they go through the details. We'll skip out. We'll skip over the little minute details about how they get together. But basically, he sets up a meeting. He gets in contact with the king. And he says, I'll meet with you. Because the king's been searching. Not only, we find out, not only in Israel, he's been searching all the surrounding countries. Sending ambassadors everywhere trying to find him. But he gets word to the king, I will meet you at this spot. But on one condition, you invite the whole nation there, and especially you bring all these prophets of these two false gods, the false god Baal, B-A-A-L, and the false god Asherah. And there were 450 prophets of each of those false gods. You bring them all. And if you do that, I'll show up. And the king says, all right, because I've been looking for you, son. I'll be gladly, I'll gladly bring them all there. So they get there on this special day, and they, they come together, and Elijah has the floor, and he looks at the vast crowd of all the Israelites, and he says, he says, who is it, guys? Who do you choose to serve? Who do you choose to follow? God, the God who brought our ancestors out of Egypt? The true God who created the earth? Or this other, these other made-up gods? This Baal and this Asherah that seem to be so in fashion. And that the king says, you know, they'll follow in and you'll be popular and you'll get along in the current society. And they're the ones to follow. Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to follow? You can hear a pin drop. Some of you who've watched Hamilton lately... You might, uh, you might recognize they're kind of following that Aaron Burr philosophy. Talk less, smile more. You know, they just, hmm, we're keeping our mouth shut. We're not taking a side. We're, we're just going to step back and we're going to just, it's a little risky to actually commit to something. So we're going to be totally silent. The whole crowd, nobody says a word. They're not going to commit either way. They don't want to offend one person or the other. They're just going to say neutral. So he says, well, listen, I got a plan. If you can't decide on your own, you tell me if this plan's good. How about we set up two altars? One for God and one for Baal and Asherah. And we set up all these stones. And then we set up a huge bonfire on top of each of them. And then we go get two oxen. And, and we're going to carve them up good. We're going to put them on top of the bonfire. And we're going to see, call out, and see which God will burn up, answer by fire, and will burn up that offering. And that's going to prove who the real God is. How do you like that? Well, this crowd that was totally silent, they weren't silent anymore. Do it, do it. They went crazy. Yeah. Because what did this cost them? Nothing. But they were going to get a great show. <laughs> Either this prophet, Elijah, was going to get humiliated, or the prophets of Baal were going to get humiliated, or they were all going to get humiliated. But it was going to be a great big show. And while they weren't much for commitment, they weren't much for taking a stand, they were big on entertainment. 
And so the whole crowd, before the prophets of Baal and Asherah even got to say, um, excuse me, wait a minute, let's rethink this plan. The whole crowd said, yeah, we want to do this. Let's do it. And so there was no choice at that point. The Bible doesn't even say what the other prophets thought about it because the crowd had said yes and there was no turning back. And then uh, Elijah, who knew exactly what he was doing, said, oh, by the way, you guys have a lot more help than I do. It'll take me longer to set up my altar. You guys go first. I'll let you have the honor of going first. And so they go first and they build up their altar this is early in the morning when this meeting started. And they build it up and they start chanting, chanting, ooh, ah, you know, saying all these things and repeating themselves and, you know, doing some dances and saying some words and nothing was happening. So they start calling out a little bit louder, getting a little bit more passion in their voices. Nothing's happening. Well, then they start breaking out the knives. They start cutting themselves and, and showing their devotion to, see, these gods, these were, not, these were not good, loving, kind. These were gods who, in the worship of these gods, you would sacrifice, not animals, you would sacrifice your own family to get blessings from them. If you were in a bind, maybe your, maybe your farm was going down and you thought, I need help, I need to save it, what do I do? And they would, you would go and they would say, sacrifice your firstborn. Well, I really like Caleb, oh, but I love the farm. You know, I mean, you just, you have to do whatever you have to do. These religions literally, literally, they promoted human sacrifice to these awful, awful religions. And so here they were, and they were, they were cutting themselves and crying out even louder, and nothing was happening. And uh, Elijah, he started enjoying this. He started having some commentary on the side, and he started climbing. You can read this in the, in the book if you want to. He starts calling out things like, uh, hey, call a little louder. Uh, Baal might be taking a nap, you know. Um, he, he might be uh, in deep sleep. Get a little louder. He doesn't hear you. And then a little bit later, he says, um, maybe he's indisposed. Maybe, you know, maybe in a few minutes he'll hear you when he comes back. You know, and he starts kind of calling out these little cuts and insults. And, and finally, it got past noon. And nothing had happened. And he's like, all right, enough. You guys have had your turn. And so he sets up his altar, takes 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel, sets up the firewood, sets up the, uh, you know, the, the sacrifice. And by the way, I, I got thinking about something. If you ever thought of like Old Testament priests or prophets as kind of meek or guys that weren't dangerous, just remember this, they were very handy with a butcher's knife. They knew how to take an ox and chop it up very swiftly and efficiently. So just keep that in mind. So he had all this thing chopped up, and uh, he said, this isn't enough. He said, um, I think we should, just to make sure no one says there's just some kind of little spark, we should, we should douse it with water. So they get four buckets of water. They douse it. That's not good enough. Do it again. They do it a second time. And hit me one more time. They do it again. He says, 
just a tad more. They do it a fourth time. And so this, at this point, everything is completely drenched. And they had, he'd even dug a little moat trench type thing around it. And that was completely full of water. And I'm sitting here thinking as I'm reading this in the Bible, this is a land that, where it hasn't rained for three years and all these people can hardly get water to drink. And somehow they've come up with, well, I, I'm hoping it was salt water because otherwise those people were like, we want something to drink and they're just wasting it on this. But anyway, this, I just think this kind of stuff when I read the Bible. But anyway, he finally calls out. He says, God, show these people who's God. And immediately God answers by fire and it says, the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the grass, the dirt, all gone. <laughs> Everything was instantly incinerated. An amazing victory. And at that point, he has the entire nation of Israel in the palm of his hand. They are all looking at him. They will all listen to whatever he says. He says, hey, go get rid of those prophets of Baal. They do it. He tells the king, hey, let's throw a little celebration because rain is coming tomorrow. King says, okay. King who was ready to kill him, torture him, do whatever. King says, whatever you say, we're going to throw a little party just like you said. Everybody is doing everything that he says to do. He tells his servant, go look for a cloud. Servant says, I don't see anything. He says, keep looking. Go back seven times if you need to. Finally, on the seventh time, the servant says, ah, I see a tiny little cloud like the size of my fist. He says, boy, you better start running. Run back to the king right now. And you tell him he better get in that chariot, hop on it, run, get as fast as he can, get down the mountain, get back to the city or he's not even going to make it back before this storm comes in. He runs back, tells the message. The king at this point is a believer, <laughs> at least a little bit. <laughs> not a true believer, but he's kind of scared enough to say, I'm going I'm to believe, and he gets on the chariot. Just because at this point, God's just doing miracles left and right for whatever reason that's his choice. God decides to do another one. And so the Bible tells us, that he hiked up, that Elijah hiked up his robes and tied them about his waist. And by the way, whenever you hear in the Bible about girding up your loins, that's kind of it. Ladies, if you've ever had a long dress and, you know, had to kind of hike up the skirt a little bit to run or something, this is the girding the loins. He'd take those long things and tie them up around the waist so he could run. And the Bible says that he outran the chariot the whole way back. And if you've ever seen Ben-Hur or any of those kind of movies, chariots can move. So this is like another miracle here. He runs back to the city ahead and he beats the storm just like the king does. So everything is amazing, right? Until the next day. The next day, the news comes to the queen. Now, I left something out back, you know, in the earlier chapters Remember when I said Omri was the worst and baddest and worst and evilest and all these words I'm making up king ever, and then Ahab was even worse, and well, why don't we really remember their names so much? Well, Ahab found him a sweet little foreign girl by the name of Jezebel. 
And we all remember Jezebel, and none of us name our daughters Jezebel, because she was so evil that she makes us forget about Ahab, who was the evilest king. She was even eviler. And she says, she sends a message, and she says, the gods, her gods, because these prophets were her pets, they're going to get you, and by tomorrow you're going to be dead like them. And this man who'd been just riding on a high, he just drops. You know, it's amazing. Sometimes we think that we're weakest when we're low, but sometimes we're weakest when we're on a high. Sometimes we think that we have life all together. And we think, you know, it's going to happen this way. And it doesn't. And he begins to run and to hide. He ends up in a place where he basically passes out, almost starves to death. The Bible tells us an angel brought him some food, another miracle. God gives him a word. Hey, you got a 40 day and night trip ahead of you till you make it to the mountain of God. And there I've got a word to say to you. And along the way, he says, God, just take my life. I'm ready to die. I'm done. I've done this and I've done that. I've eaten food you brought to me by birds. I, I lived with a widow. I've, you know, I, I've done all these things and, and I'm done. I, I'm ready to die. I, I think my time's over. I, I'm, I'm done. Tired of carrying on. And that's when we get to the scripture that we read. Where he's on the mountain of God and God tells him, Go outside, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, the voice of the Lord's going to speak to you, and you're going to hear it. What do we learn from this? Three things, very quickly, I want us to think about today. First of all, number one, disappointment always follows when we figure God out. And if you're taking notes, make sure when you write that down. Disappointment always follows when we figure God out. You put figure God out in parentheses because we don't ever really figure God out. But when we think we figure God out, when we think we've understood the way God works, when we think that we can now predict God, that we think that we've got to the place that, oh, I've been walking with him long enough. God's been working through me in and through my life, and now I know the way that God works, so now I can predict what he's going to do next. It's at that point that we have automatically set ourselves up for disappointment, disillusionment, depression, whatever you want to call it. We're going to be greatly disturbed because we don't ever figure God out. Or another way to put it, we don't ever put God in a box. God cannot be contained by our little theories about him. That's what I believe this whole test was all about. When God said, go out and listen for, <clears throat> for the word of the Lord. And there was the mighty hurricane force wind. And God wasn't in it. And there was the earthquake. And God wasn't in it. And there was the fire from heaven. And God wasn't in it. And then God was in the little, small, still small whisper voice. 
I think we get the wrong message from that all the time. The message that I've heard taught and preached from that is God speaks to us in a still, small voice. No! That's not the message this is teaching. God can speak to us in a still, small voice. But the message is God doesn't always speak to us the same way. God doesn't speak to us the way we expect he's going to speak to us. The reason that God spoke in a still, small voice to Elijah is because he expected the big, the flashy, the earthquake, the hurricane force wind, the fire. Think about what he'd seen. He'd seen a famine of three years. He'd seen the fire from heaven. He'd seen the supernatural work on the legs of an old man where he outruns a chariot. I mean, he'd seen miracle after miracle, a boy coming back to life, flour and oil that never ended. He'd seen all the huge, big things. And in his mind, this is how God works, through big, splashy, awesome miracles. And God had to remind him that his ways are higher than man's ways, that God can do whatever he wants. And just because at the very end, whenever he thought, okay, I've defeated these prophets on the mountain, and now the evil king and queen are about to be overthrown, and it's all over with. You know, and and Ahab seemed ready to back down, and he was so shocked and so blown away that Jezebel didn't block, that, that she didn't back down, that she didn't abdicate. It blew his mind. He couldn't understand it. And God's saying, look, I work in different ways sometimes. Don't think that just because you had fire on the mountain yesterday that you're going to have fire on the mountain today. I work in whatever way I choose to work. And it might be some supernatural uh, whatever today, but tomorrow it might be a behind-the-scenes kind of providence that I'm working on. And so disappointment comes when we figure out God. I'm always leery of these Bible studies, of these teachings from certain teachers that that come and they say, oh, here's this secret to here's the way how to know blah, blah, blah about God. These people who think they have God figured out, be very careful about them. The pattern may follow for a little while. That pattern followed for a long time in the life of the prophet Elijah. But God eventually said, I got more than this to show you. Number two, you're never as alone as you think. One of the greatest effects of the situation we've been going through with the coronavirus is the effect of isolation. Uh, It's crazy. Awful. Awful, awful. Uh, One of my friends in the Presbytery, a retired pastor, served as an amazing um, man of God in this Presbytery for years and years and years. And he posts on Facebook often about how tough it is. No one can see him, you know. His his wife went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. He has his daughters who love him, but... They're not allowed to come in and see him. I mean, the, the isolation, isolation is a terrible thing. I mean, God tells us we were not 
meant to be alone. What's that? Genesis tells us. Yeah, everything was good. God created, but he looked at Adam. It's not good for him to be alone. We were designed to live in community. I mean, even, even those of us that are, you know, kind of, you know, on the, you know, I'm a little bit more introverted side. It may have taken us a little longer, but after a while we were like, ooh, this is weird. We think sometimes that we are so alone. We think we are, whether it's literal or a figurative type of aloneness, like there's people around us, but we're alone in our beliefs, or we're alone and maybe no one's supporting us, no one's on our side. Maybe we're being left behind. Maybe someone has passed on before us, or maybe they've moved away, or, or somehow we're cut off in a relationship. And, and so we feel so alone. And the truth from this word is that you are never as alone as you think. He thought he, fa- he was faithfully serving God, and with all his heart, he stood before God. God asked him the same question twice, and he answered it the same exact way twice. He said, I alone. Okay, you don't tell God the same exact thing twice to his face on the mountain of God unless you really believe it. He said, I alone am the only one who's still serving God. And God said, no. I've reserved for myself (laughs) 7,000. Take your one and multiply times 7,000. So all those other, and there were probably plenty more out there who still believed in God, but they'd compromised a little here and there to get along or whatever. But there were 7,000 others in the nation who had completely not compromised one single bit, had never once bowed the knee, who had never once given in at all to the, to the worship of Baal and Asherah. And he thought he was all alone. And I think when... When we try to live right, when we try to stand up for what's right, when we try to do what the Holy Spirit convicts us to do, we all get that feeling that we're alone, don't we? We all get that feeling like everybody else is doing what's wrong and it seems to work out just fine for them. And I'm the only one trying to do what's right and I'm suffering. And we start to question why we're even doing it. And we need to remember what this passage teaches us that we're not alone. That there are so many others going through the same exact situation. We just don't realize it. And I don't know if there's anywhere else in the Bible that the Bible, that God specifically does what he does for Elijah right here. I, I, I don't know that he specifically goes to anybody else and says, oh, by the way, Timothy, there's X number of other people just like you. That's just not how God normally works. But he does, in this passage, teach us that there's more out there than we think. Third and final, you touch more lives than you possibly realize. You touch more lives than you possibly realize. Elijah was done And part of the reason he was done is because he thought he had nothing more to give. He thought 
that he'd done all that he could do. He thought he was used up. <laughs> he said, look, I can't do any more than I'd done on the mountain. <laughs> I mean, God, I, I got in front of the whole country. I did my thing. I, I, and apparently my thing didn't work, God. I thought it worked. For a moment there, I thought I had the whole nation in my hand. But you know what? It didn't phase Jezebel. So, God, apparently I'm kind of useless. And, and he felt like, I'm going to throw in the towel. I, you know, there's just really no point to this. That's how he felt. But God, by the way, I love how God kind of, in a way he corrected him, but he kind of overcame the the attitude, I mean, he kind of overlooked the attitude. It's funny, if, if you read this passage and kind of in your mind put God as the parent and him as a teenager and kind of read it and kind of put the inflection in their voices and, I don't know, it just gives a different perspective as, as he's kind of, you know, whining there a little bit and frust, frustrated and everything. And um, God just kind of, you know, let, let's him go on, okay, I'm... I'm not going to argue with you, but by the way, I do, just so you know, I've got 7,000 uh, lined up for me. And, um, oh yeah, one other thing that you need to know is uh, I do still have some work for you. And he lines out some jobs for him. He says, I, I got some people for you to anoint. The king of Aram, I want you to go anoint this guy. And uh, this other guy, I want you to go anoint as the king of Israel. And uh, this other, you know, this guy named Elisha, this young guy, he's going to be your successor. And so you got a few more years to go because you're going to train him to be another great prophet. In fact, we come to know that Elisha, the Bible says, inherits a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. Uh, and he becomes a great prophet just like Elijah. See, he thought his work was done. And so many times people who fall into a depression, whether it be after the loss of a spouse or some great loss or disappointment in life, and they say, Pastor Tim, I don't even understand. Why am I still here? My spouse is gone, or this has happened, or this has failed, or, or this has been messed up. Why am I even still here in this life? It's because God still has something for you. And you touch more lives than you possibly realize. If you are still here living and breathing, God has a purpose and a plan for your life. You may not realize it, but not only are you not alone, but God continues to have a place where you're going to be used for his kingdom, his purposes, and to bless others. Would you pray with me today? Father God, I just thank you for the prophet Elijah. There were so many amazing things about him, the, the things that you did through him. And I know his faith and his patience are, had to be so far beyond mine. And, and yet, Lord, I feel like I can identify with him to some degree Lord, in the, the fears, the desires to give up, the, the disappointments, the doubts, the difficulties, being overwhelmed, 
Lord, we face all these things, and I pray that just as we have looked at his life, that we would learn, God, that you have so much more for us. And we may be stuck. We may be feeling stuck right now. We may be feeling left out or left behind or, or just confused because we don't know which way is up or where to go. But God, you're still at work. You've got so much going on that, that we don't even understand yet. But God, you have great plans for each of us. And Lord, if there's anybody here today who doesn't know you through your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that today they put faith in you, as they trust in your son Jesus, who died on the cross for them, that they would believe in his name, that he died for them, for their sins, on the cross, and that he rose again, that he is with you in heaven, and that your spirit is now here with us to guide us and help each of us who are believers to live and to walk in your spirit. Lord, may we now reflect on your work in our lives and surrender to your work, Father, whatever it is that you need to do to us, in us and through us, to honor you, to carry out your will. Father, may that happen right now. May your grace and your mercy and your love work in our hearts, in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.